0: We'll invite you now, loved ones, to turn and find in your Bibles the scripture passage we'll consider this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 8, and we'll make our way to chapter 10, verse 4. That's found on page 1073 of our Pew Bibles. starting in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. The Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm and branch and reed in a single day. The elders and the prominent men are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tale. Those who guide this people mislead them. And those who are guided are led astray. Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched, and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. On the right they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left they will eat, but none will be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of his own offspring. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey, and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it together this morning. Well, loved ones, what we just read is an analysis of ancient Israel's society. So this is a social commentary of an ancient society, God's own people, from God's perspective. The prophet Isaiah, carried along by the Holy Spirit of God, anticipated here the calamities that would fall on Israel in their future. And in preparation for those dark days ahead, Isaiah here is showing God's people how they must think about what was going to happen according to God's providence and here according to the perspective that he gives them. So he wants them to know not only that they were going to suffer great and many trials and calamities, but also why. Why? Calamities were coming, and they would soon fall on them. Why? Because the word of the Lord came to them, and they chose instead the way of self-reliance, autonomy, and godlessness instead of trusting in the Lord and His word. Calamities and disasters in this world ultimately stem from this root cause— Humanity cut itself off from God and His Word in the beginning with Adam and Eve, and ever since we've been choosing to live godless lives, seeking to live apart from Him and apart from His Word. So humanity falls, and all of creation has fallen with it because humanity fails to return to God, to turn away from evil. We fall because we fail to repent. Now, with that said, Isaiah's message here today is primarily doom and gloom. You probably heard it as we read it. But we need to see this passage in the context of its larger uh, corpus of text here, the, the larger context of Isaiah, because even last week, right, we saw how Isaiah was showing us that there is no dawn within us. There is no light of hope found within humanity itself. We are hopeless in and of ourselves, in that utter darkness. But, but, Isaiah declared to us that God, according to his promise, would send a great light, the great light which was the child born to us, the son given to us, to whom the kingdom of God belongs, which is Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, right? The only one who has come to bring us hope from outside of us. So Isaiah gives us this message of doom and gloom here in the passage before us, but we have to remember that he, along with those who believe in his day, had hope in God, the God of the promises. But Isaiah, perhaps we're thinking, Isaiah, come on, man. Why more doom and gloom? You know, Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. Do we really need to hear that again? Why? Why? Well, this is why. Because humans, we are stubborn. We don't want to wake up to the reality that our only hope of salvation is found outside of us. Not in us, but outside of us. We really like to believe that we hold within ourselves the potential for salvation or the sliver of some part of the work of salvation. And so we need to wake up. We need these kinds of wake-up calls like this. And what better way to wake us up Then poetry, poetry, that's what's before us in this text. Poetry is powerful. Poetry pierces the heart where prose pokes. Poetry is piercing. And so Isaiah is giving us this piercing poem here of doom and gloom. The poem contains four stanzas that contain four critiques of Israel as a society. There are four failures. And so we'll consider those four failures of Israel which then speak of the forthcoming judgment. It's still to come, he's saying. And lastly, we'll see the fulfillment of justice. And those will be our three points. The four failures of Israel, the forthcoming judgment, and then the fulfillment of justice in the end. So first, the four failures of Israel. I want you to notice the beginning of our passage in verse 9-8, and then at the end of the passage, we see an inclusio, For this poem. An inclusio is a literary device that brackets a passage in the beginning and the end, like bookends, right? If you have a shelf, you have uh, bookends to keep the books in line, right? On the beginning and at the end. And so we see that the bookends of this poem with the repetition of the word fall. Fall in chapter 9, verse 8, and then again in chapter 10, verse 4. So in 9, 8, we hear that God's word of judgment will fall. On Israel, And then in 10.4, we see that once his word has fallen, Israel will fall. And so what, is, what he's saying here is that they will be brought low. Israel will be brought low. Those who were in a high position of honor in the world will be brought so low for their sins against God and the refusal to repent. In the end, they will either be lowered to a place below prisoners in captivity or lower to a place below the dead, Isaiah says. Why? Because they failed to be faithful time and time again. The judgments that God would send them here, that He speaks of, they were disciplinary in nature. God was punishing them, Israel, in order to wake them up from their nightmare of rebellion against their Creator. Each calamity that He would send their way, Brought to them by the hand of God Himself was like a splash of cold water on their face. Why? To wake them up from their godless way of life. And we can pause and think about ourselves and how this applies to us, how this relates to us. The happenings in the world are not just coincidence of our current moments. Every small and big moment in this world, we remember, happens according to God's perfect providence, His plan, His design we tend to think as we read a passage like this that God was active in judging people in the bible in those days but that he is perhaps absent today well that's wrong god is still active in sending his judgments upon the world today and we can ask ourselves the question how many more calamities in the world do we need to witness before we wake up wake up to the reality what reality that Humanity is not leading civilization and creation towards sustainable world peace. We are not leading civilization and creation to sustainable world peace. That ship sailed when Adam failed in the garden. What what is humanity doing? Well, what Isaiah is describing here is humanity is like a drunk man stumbling towards a cliff in the middle of the night, in utter darkness that is what we find humanity to be all the man-made calamities and the natural disasters that we have seen over the past years just the past few years alone they should be seen by us as splashes of cold water on our face to wake us up from the illusion that all is fine he wants us to see that we cannot fix ourselves in the world in any ultimate sense And what I mean by that is that no amount of psychology or medication can fix, ultimately, human brokenness. No amount of ecological conservation can ultimately fix the earth, which is groaning in corruption. Does that mean that we should all just let it go to waste? No, not at all. Instead, we need to realize that the hope for fixing things is not found ultimately in us hope is found in the creator himself the brokenness is meant to lead us to the only one who is capable of fixing it the only one with resurrection power so when calamities like the pandemic or wars or natural disasters happen as they have been lately well they are in a sense god's judgment against the crimes of humanity God sends such calamities in order to wake us up from the illusion that all is fine. We are not fine. The world is a mess because humanity is a mess. Now, with that said, is Isaiah simply pointing his finger at us, giving us a guilt trip? Is that what he's intending to do? No, no. He wants us to abandon hope in ourselves so that we would look in hope to God, the only Redeemer and the only Renewer. So that is the goal here, as we find that within ourselves there's no hope, so we look to God for the hope that he brings. So we'll now analyze now the four failures here that we find of Israel in the four stanzas of this poem. So first notice that each stanza of the four is marked by a concluding statement. Hopefully you caught it as we read through the passage. The statement where it says, Yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is still upraised. And that's found in verse 12, and then again in verse 17, and then we find it in verse 21, and then in verse, or chapter 10, verse 4. And so we analyze the first stanza then, the first stanza, the first failure of Israel in verses 8 to 12, chapter 9, where here we see that God calls humanity out for particular sins, arrogance and self-reliance. The idea that, ah, calamities might befall us, but we have this spirit that we will progress, we will make something better, that we have this illusion that we are leading civilization into a greater prosperity, more and more to come. Calamities might come, but we will succeed in the end. This vain hope In ourselves, this arrogance and self-reliance. And God judges them, he says, by sending foreign invaders upon them, namely the Assyrians, the Syrians, and the Philistines. So this failure of their arrogance and their self-reliance, this belief that they could actually progress and leave evil behind and leave distress behind and enter into a world of greater prosperity and peace, In the second stanza, the second failure in verses 13 to 17, God calls out humanity for the godless leadership of their day and for the people as well who chose to follow the lies over the truth. Basically, this is what Jesus refers to as the blind leading the blind, right? Alec Moyter says that this part of the poem expresses that practical atheism, which is so prevalent today, which believes life can be lived without God, that he and his word are irrelevancies in the real world. And what we see described in this little passage here, this practical atheism, is that as people reject God, what happens? They reject God in order to do evil, and that results in a loss of moral conscience in society. So less and less attuned to moral realities less ashamed by sinful deeds. And so God judges them. How? Well, we see it's not by sending foreign invaders coming, but instead by letting them slip into moral decay, letting them go their own way. And the third stanza in verses 18 to 21, the third failure, God calls out Israel and through Israel, all of humanity, for self-seeking. Self-seeking. When self-seeking is left unchecked, it sweeps through human society like a forest fire and none is spared. Instead of seeing that we are indebted to God, which is the proper perspective, that we are indebted to him, our creator, for giving us all things, for giving us life itself. Instead of seeing that we are indebted to our neighbors in love and indebted, in a sense, to all of creation, what do we see? We are often in the disposition of our mind that we are only indebted to ourselves and our own interests. We seek our own self-interest, and in the process we devour one another. And God's judgment here, again, is passive. He lets the humans destroy each other. Lastly, we find the fourth stanza, the fourth failure of Israel in chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, where God calls humanity out for writing unjust laws, for not seeking justice for the needy and the poor in society. Why? Why do we not do such things? Why do we have no concern for justice in society? Well, because we tend to prioritize, he's saying, our own self-enrichment to the disadvantage of others. And we are really good at justifying cold, calloused greed. We justify ourselves all the time, and we ignore the poor and the needy. And so God was sending them calamities, he says, from afar to wake them up from their selfish slumber. So these four judgments, these four indictments against Israel are laid out and Isaiah prophesied that they'd come to pass, and we read at the end of chapter 10, verse 4, that God's anger still, still did not turn away. What does that mean? God's full justice against the sins of His people was still not met. He still had more justice, more righteous anger. The degree of punishment still did not fit the decree or the degree of the crimes that were committed against Him and against humanity. So the calamities that they, had, that they were facing and soon would face, they were warnings of future condemnation, judgment that was still to, God, to come. God's hand of judgment was still upraised against them. And that leads us to our second point, the forthcoming judgment. As we looked at, the last line of this poem tells us that his judgment, his justice is still aimed at Israel. He was not done punishing them for their lack of love, for him their lack of love for their neighbors because they loved themselves so much and disregarded the other first god and then their neighbor god's wrath remained on them so here we see in a sense god's holy justice rising higher and higher with each stanza still raised high it's as if the axe of the executioner is being lifted into the sky, ready to strike down with force upon Israel in justice. With one fell swoop of God's holy justice, all criminals against the Lord God Almighty would be brought to a swift and terrible, unending end. In a place where there's no joy, no happiness, what the Bible, what Jesus calls hell. And so Isaiah here is telling Israel that these calamities are warnings of the future condemnation which is to come. God's justice must be satisfied. How does this relate to us? The calamities that we see around us in the world are warnings of future condemnation as well. You can think of the pandemic, or the possibility before us of World War III which is bad. But be warned, God's final judgment is forthcoming and it will be more intense because we deserve far worse for sinning against Him and His holy majesty. God's holy justice is lifted higher and higher and higher against the sinners for each and every sin which is committed. For every lie we tell His justice is raised higher. For every evil desire that we pursue, his hand is raised higher still. For every malicious thought that we entertain about others, God's wrath rises to higher heights. Every little sin demands a higher degree, degree of punishment. And so we see that his hand of justice is raised against sinners. And the last day, justice will be served and that full degree of judgment will fall on humans for their crimes committed against Him. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the Scripture says, full exacting judgment will be had. But know this, God's hand of judgment is upraised against sinners today as well. The calamities of the world are gracious wake-up calls calling us to repent before that crashing blow of condemnation comes down upon us in the end. Judgment is forthcoming for crimes against God and his creation. Justice will be full and final in the end. That leads us to our third and last point, the fulfillment of justice. Isaiah's poem here, it leaves us in a state of suspense. The hand of our judge and executioner is upraised still. The question is, will he spare any? If God was only just and no mercy, no mercy at all, not merciful, then none of us would be spared. We deserve to be struck down, each and every one of us, for our wickedness, for our sins. That's what Isaiah has been saying here. But there is more to the story. Isaiah himself will get there. He's already talked about it. There is hope. There is good news. There's gospel. God is merciful as well so in a sense, we see here the hand of justice upraised to the sky, ready to strike down. But in the Gospel, we see God's hand of mercy stay His hand of justice, holding back His justice. Why? So that some might be saved and redeemed. On the cross of Calvary, where the Son of God hanged, God's mercy held back His righteous anger against sinners like us. His justice was held back by his mercy, leaving the acts of judgment held high in the air so that sinners might be set free from that condemnation. So if you wake up and realize that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and his mercy, and if you trust in Jesus, then God's hand of justice is not raised still against you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only mercy. Only grace. How can that be? How is that possible? God's mercy does not cancel out his justice, does not forever hold back his justice. He must punish sin because he must be just. He cannot be unjust. And so, if some are set free from God's judgment by his mercy, how is his justice fulfilled? It is because God's hand of justice fell fully upon the person of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners like you and me. Using that illustration of the axe held high, God's Son willingly put his human head under the axe of God's holy justice to free us from it. The lashes, the nail wounds, the splinters in his flesh were the surface wounds that Jesus experienced and suffered that all pointed to the deeper wounds that inflicted him in his heart, the condemnation, the righteous anger of God against sinners like us, punishing him in our place. And so there on the cross we see God himself in our humanity, feeling the lashes of utter loneliness, the nails of abandonment, and the splinters of rejection. In love, God chose to take the hand of justice in order to heal us with his hand of grace. He took the hand of justice in order to heal us with his hand of grace. This means that if you trust in Jesus, despite all of your sins, God's anger has turned away from you because it fell on him in the person of Christ on Calvary. Our forefathers in the Christian faith, they wrote about this back In 1618, at the Synod of Dort, where they wrote that God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. His justice requires that the sins we have committed against his infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. In other words, his hand is still upraised. But that's not all. They continue saying, Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction of justice or deliver ourselves from God's wrath, God in his boundless mercy has given us a guarantee, his only begotten son who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that that he might give satisfaction for us. He satisfied God's full justice for us. So beloved, on the cross of Calvary, God's upraised hand of justice fell on Him who was lifted up as a curse for us. There God's wrath was fully exerted and extinguished in the person of Christ. The wrath that was raised up against you was all placed upon Christ on the cross for us. Because He suffered for us now, God's hand of justice is not raised against you, but instead, instead, we receive the welcoming arms of his love as his beloved children with whom he is well pleased. It's not his hand of justice raised against us, but his loving countenance, his smile in favor upon us in mercy and in grace. Not because we deserve it, far from it, but because Jesus paid the price the price in our place to set us free from that condemnation, and Jesus made full satisfaction for our sins. Full justice has been served. So the promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. Now as it was for Israel, as we consider again where we are today, the calamities before us, they are warnings of that future condemnation that is to come. So may this text, like a splash of cold water in our face, wake us up to the reality that we cannot fix ourselves, we cannot fix the world. There is forthcoming judgment, and the fulfillment of justice will be had either in you in your suffering under God's wrath or in Christ's suffering in your place on Calvary. Receive Christ's death, as the punishment for your sins, believe in him and walk in that freedom. If not, if not, if you do not turn to Christ by faith, be warned again this morning that his hand of justice is still upraised against you if you do not believe in Christ. But instead, we beg you, we plead with you, implore you, believe in him and be saved. Reject him and perish. Believe in Him, and you will have eternal life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The choice is yours. Trust in Him. Amen. Let us pray.